0: So, I was raised in a uh, way to know that there was a right way to do everything. I'm sure you were taught that there was a right way to do everything as well. Um, No matter where you come from, the north, the south, another country, there is a right way, isn't there? As a good southern girl, I was raised to understand this. Sometimes that was taught in explicit ways, and sometimes in more subtle ways. Uh, Of course, I was taught to say yes ma'am and no sir and never was I to invite a friend to spend the night with me, especially if I had not had that cleared with my parents or and especially if they were uh, in front of my parents and I was doing the asking right then and there on the spot. That was not okay. (laughs) And when I went to visit my friend's house, the street or wherever you know that I could roam in my neighborhood the the advice was never stay too long you don't want to wear out your welcome even if it did not matter you know what my friend's parents said you still did not stay too long of course there were table manners um Not to put my elbows on the table, you know, put the napkin in your lap. And I bet if we were to poll all the kids in the room today, they could tell us all the lessons that they're learning even uh, these days about how to act at the table, not to chew with our mouths open and not to smack and definitely not to burp. Um, Got to take small bites and always ask to be excused when you are done eating. And the older I got, the more I learned about how to set the table and where to put the forks and the spoons and the napkins. And I'm not sure that it's stuck. <laughs> uh, I still have challenges with that sometimes. Um, how to fold the napkin, how to use all these utensils when you're eating, you know, where to begin and how to follow the host or hostess's lead before even beginning to eat. All of the rules of the table all of the rules of the meal. And just when I thought I uh, had, had had enough of that, we had to go and buy Emily Post's etiquette book because I was getting married. And that's when etiquette got serious, you know. Uh, how do you address the invitations? When do you send out the invitation? How should the invitation read? Uh, who is giving whom in marriage? Or are we giving one another in marriage? or you know, whatever the the correct language is. How are you supposed to include children in the uh, invitation? Uh, By when should you RSVP? And how uh, should you send thank you notes? And when should you send thank you notes? And should you send thank you notes? All this etiquette that uh, let us know how to belong. Etiquette shows us how to belong. Uh, the definition of etiquette literally is the conduct or procedure required by good breeding or prescribed by authority that's to be observed in social or official life. Conduct or procedure required by good breeding or by defined by those in authority uh, as the way to observe our life together. In French, literally, uh, etiquette comes from the word ticket, which at that point uh, was the way to label things by identifying them with these labels to ticket to ticket things. And so we ticket our life, don't we? We, we order and label our lives uh, and the way we are together. You know how to do what is expected of you don't you? So that you bring honor to your family, that you don't embarrass them in public. All the rules are to uh, show us how to belong, how to be at our place. I remember the first time I was preparing to encounter another culture, um, and I made sure to read books and to ask friends for advice and uh, I was so afraid that I was going to make the wrong hand gesture and offend someone um, or that I was going to bring the wrong number of flowers when I arrived on the occasion. Instead of multiples of three I thought maybe I would bring an an even number which would indicate uh, death or funerals and so I was was real anxious that I would mess all this stuff up when I was in Germany Um, The Germans, they did things differently. They didn't eat uh, with their hands in their laps. They ate with both hands on utensils, with the right hand with the fork, I mean the left hand with the fork and the right hand with the knife, and you never put them down. You just ate the whole time with utensils in your hand and scooping things up on the back of your fork, and all of that was new to me, all of that was strange to me. Uh, again, I was so concerned that I would do something wrong that I might offend someone or embarrass myself, and that was the last thing I wanted to do because I wanted to belong. I wanted to belong in that culture, that new culture that I was encountering. Social norms, they're in every culture, aren't they? They are the rules of engagement, Every no, everyone knows what's expected of them, and everyone knows uh, what's expected of those around them. We know how to play the game. And I'm not saying the game is bad. I'm just saying we know. We have rules and we know. Well, today, our parable centers on an invitation to a meal. And so, certainly, there were rules about meals, even in these times. Uh, rules about engaging one another, rules about invitations, rules about where people sat and what you ate. Etiquette for first century Palestine. Etiquette for Greco-Roman culture. Etiquette in the church, even. And it's interesting to me uh, that so many of the stories in Luke that we read are centered around a table. If you look, many of the most important teachings of Jesus occur at a table. Nothing can be more serious for the gospel writer Luke than a dining table, Fred Craddock writes. And so we must take notice when there's so many stories about tables. And in chapter 14 alone, we have actually four stories centered around the table and eating. And so perhaps Luke is telling us something important. Perhaps he's calling us to pay attention to something about these ways of being with one another in fellowship at the table my seminary professor uh, at McAfee School of Theology, uh, and he was the dean as well, uh, Alan Culpepper, he wrote that the greatest crisis in the early church was who one ate with. The greatest crisis in the early church was over table fellowship and how you did that. And so Luke, our gospel writer, obviously, is addressing This crisis is addressing these concerns and calling us and our attention to perhaps another way of being at the table with one another. It's at the table and through these parables at the table that Jesus' vision of the kingdom was made very clear and where he showed us his protest against discriminatory practices. It was at the table that these lessons were taught. In first century uh, Palestine, some of those table rituals meant uh, that you washed your hands before the meal. Before you were served a meal, you uh, were... um, you received water that was poured out of, a, out of a pitcher into a basin and you washed your hands and you did that because you were going to be eating with your hands and they needed to be cleaned. I experienced this tradition actually in Kenya this summer when I visited. Um, and uh, hot water was poured over our hands into a basin and we were given a towel with which to dry them off. Uh, after the meal, you washed your hands. At the table, you sat low. The tables were not our standard height p- tables. They were low to the ground. And you did not have chairs. You sat reclining or you sat with your, your feet underneath you. Probably not crisscross applesauce like we do with our first graders, but at least to the side so that they're not uh, near the food. They're not blocking your access to the table. Um, if the meal was perhaps um, more prestigious uh, meal, a, a fancier meal, there might be chairs, but again, not normal sized chairs because we don't have normal sized tables, so they would have been little little stools that, that people would have sat on for the meal. The meal was also about defining boundaries, where you sit and where you don't sit, and who's invited and who's not invited. And we see that uh, in the dining spaces of homes, there was an elevated place where those who were of greater distinction sat. They sat furthest from the door and closest to the host. The most distinguished sat on the right hand of the guest and the second most distinguished on the left hand of the host. And we know that this causes great problems uh, for Jesus' disciples, uh, uh, James and John. They, too, want the most distinguished places of honor in the kingdom uh, beside Jesus. If you were less distinguished, that meant you sat further away from the host and close to the door. There were... uh, Uh, Other rules that followed what you ate, if you were a Jew, obviously, there were kosher laws and restrictions about what you ate and what you did not eat. Again, we could go on and on, but as you understand, there's a culture, there's a table culture, there is a way of being with one another so that everyone knows their place, everyone knows uh, how and where to belong. Meals, however, were, in fact, the uh, probably one of the greatest social institutions in the culture at the time. Uh, they were meant to be places where covenant was established, where true relationships of peace and of love and intimacy were established. So the meal was an extremely sacred and holy event. And so as we begin to look at our text this morning, I need to back up a little bit. I want to start with the first chapter. I mean, with the first uh, story within chapter 14. Before we get to our text this morning, Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee and he's been invited to eat the Sabbath meal And as he was eating and preparing to eat, he was being watched extremely closely. The Pharisees were always uh, keeping a a close watch on Jesus. And a man with dropsy, uh, someone with a, uh, a, a need, with a physical ailment, appeared before Jesus. And Jesus asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath And they were silent. And so Jesus took him away and healed him and then sent him on his way. And then we notice that uh, the second story beginning in verse 7, the guests are clamoring for their places of honor at this meal, trying to sit in those highest places next to the host. But Jesus says, when you're invited to a banquet, don't sit at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished comes in after you. And then the host will have to tell you, you got to get up and you got to move to a place of lower distinction and you don't want to be shamed and embarrassed. So start in the lower position so that the master might come to you and invite you to the seat of honor. And then we get this statement for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted and then another story Jesus uh, says to the host now he's spoken to guests and now he speaks to the host and he says when you give a luncheon or a dinner don't invite your friends or rich relatives or rich rich neighbors or your brother's Because they might be able to pay you back. They might be able to uh, honor you in the same way that you honored them. But instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. Because you'll be blessed. They can't repay you and you'll be blessed. You'll be paid not now, but at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus, in these texts, is challenging the social customs of his day, isn't he? He's throwing out all the rules of etiquette that they thought they knew. And he's saying, your value and your honor is not in your place of privilege, but your value is where I place you. Your value in this kingdom is one of humility and you're not to seek the praise of others. You're supposed to seek the praise and the blessing of God and your righteousness is more important than your social esteem or your place in society. These are all stories where Jesus is questioning honor and power and place, and who's in and who's not in. And so we now are at our text for the morning. One of the dinner guests, on hearing Jesus talking about the resurrection and the great meal in that kingdom, he says, I want to be the one who eats in that kingdom with you. But Jesus says you might want to think about if you will be at that kingdom dinner because uh, someone gave a great dinner, invited many. And at that dinner, uh, some came and uh, some did not come and others were invited. So perhaps you will not be at that table. In this text that we have this morning, you see yet another custom of, of the day, the double invitation to a meal. And so the host would extend the first invitation well in advance uh, so that people could plan and prepare for it. But it was expected, it was customary for there to be a decline of that initial invitation. And so we see in our text this morning, three different uh, guests declining the invitations for a variety of reasons. The reason they declined the, the invitation initially was so they could make sure that indeed, preparations and arrangements were being made, but it was also so they could determine if they wanted to go or not. Was so-and-so going to show up? And would I want to be at dinner with that person? Or would I not want to be at dinner with that person? And so this was a way, I suppose, for them to, to again, uh, keep face and, and honor and not embarrass themselves. And so the first one says, I can't come to your dinner. I'm sorry. I... I have to go check on the land that I've bought sight unseen, so I must go see it. And then the second one says, I've got to go check on my oxen that I've bought and to see if they actually can do the work that they're supposed to do. And immediately we see the absurdity in these two uh, regrets, don't we? Why would you buy land sight unseen, and why would you buy oxen that you don't know can do the job that you've, you've bought them for. And so we also see in, in these two regrets the challenge of material possessions as well and how they so easily get in the way of our accepting the invitation. The third regret was from someone who had just gotten married. And in fact, that was probably the best excuse Uh, Given, And that was the one that was most acceptable because even you could get out of military service if you had just recently been married. And so this was a common uh, excuse that that was allowed. Well, the second invitation uh, was issued actually to whom? It was issued to those who were not people of means those people who would have normally been welcomed at a dinner like this. And so the host is left perhaps embarrassed because no one is at his dinner. And so the parable says he told his slave to go out into the streets and to invite the crippled and the poor and the lame and the blind and I love the text where it says, after he did that and they came, there was still room. There was still room. Can you imagine today if we were to throw a lunch or dinner and invited those on our streets with the thousands of people that, that are living uh, with disease or with uh, ailments or who are blind or who are homeless, if we were to invite them into our space and still there was room y'all, the Lord's table is a big table with lots of room. So much so that even uh, another invitation was given to those outside the city gate, not just those within the walls, the streets and, and lanes here, but go beyond the gates and compel those who least expect to be invited to this meal. Compel them to come. Go out into the roads and lanes so that may, my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. This story makes me think of uh, the text from Isaiah where uh, we, we hear the words of the prophet saying, and we also hear the echoes of Handel's Messiah, every valley will be lifted up and every mountain will be made low. The host and the guest become one, right? At the table, There is equality, there is no distinction. We throw away all the rules of engagement about who's in and who's not, what proper etiquette is. Y'all just come to the table. It's here, it's prepared, it's open, and there's lots of room. In our culture, particularly in our church culture, we like to think that... uh, We get to choose being a member, don't we? We choose our membership in a church. At the end of our service, we'll extend an invitation and the choice will be yours to stay or to be a part of our fellowship or to move on and find another place of fellowship somewhere else. We like to think that the power and the control is in our hands, don't we? To choose that we're so important We get to make this choice about being here. Well, actually, Wendell Berry, through many of his writings, he reframes membership and talks about it as membership being something that is given. Membership is not chosen. Membership is given. We see the host extending that membership. The Lord extends that membership. It's the gift of God. Membership is not something our church, it's not something we hold power over. Membership in the body of Christ is God's invitation. Somehow we like to think we have the power over others, don't we? That we can withhold the invitation or not. And we do that in so many ways. Y'all, we do that in so many ways from the explicit again to the subtle. Uh, Churches uh, have turned many a young person away or many a... A hurt person away because they thought they had to dress a certain way to be a part or they had to speak a certain way to be a part or they had to give up certain behaviors to be a part so many layers and layers of etiquette that we have put on membership on Wednesday night in our missions class that meets down the hall we had um, Bill Neal and Susan Selman with us, and they shared with us about the ministry over the years that they personally have been involved in uh, with those who are disabled for a variety of reasons, whether that's developmental disabilities or uh, something immediate that that happened to someone and that created a lifelong disability and that prevented them in many ways from access to the community. Bill told us that uh, probably the most left out people groups are those who are at home caring for people who are disabled or who are in chronic need. Our homebound, those who are caring for our homebound, those who um, suffer from, from disabilities of all sorts, they are the most left out in our churches. And so many times we have said you're not welcome in church by not having wheelchair ramps or elevators or cutouts in our pews so that someone can sit and not feel like they are sticking out. I'm grateful that this church in many ways has, um, has done something different about that and has, has said through our architecture, in fact, that you are welcome here if you're disabled, if you are someone who is ailing. Friends of mine in Virginia have also uh, broken down those barriers of membership into the church because for them, church is a meal, just like our text this morning uh, talks about. For them, they started their church with a meal for the homeless people in their communities uh, in Danville, Virginia. And every week, actually about six times a month, they rotate which home or which church this large potluck meal is held in. And anybody in the community can come and be a part of that meal and that fellowship. And true community is being uh, formed around those tables. It's not uh, a ministry of necessarily uh, what I can do to help you. It's not that kind of ministry. But it's a ministry of relationship, of sitting around the tables, of learning about one another, of understanding one another and where we come from and what our common challenges in life are and how we're more alike than we're different and how we can be in fellowship with one another. I love how, they, how they've done other things in their community, like created a tool bank for anybody that needs to come and, and rent for free something that they need for their, their garden or for their yard or for, uh, uh, for their work. They have created and established a community with no barriers and no walls, Friends of mine also are kind of chiming in with this this notion of extending hospitality and friendship to their neighbors, in fact, of extending this kind of radical hospitality to those who they may not even know, which is actually the root of the word hospitality. It's not extending welcome to someone that you know, like, your Friday night parties with your best friends. Hospitality is extending radical welcome to those you don't know. To those you don't know. And so Friends of mine have uh, created s'more pits in their front yards or they have put turquoise tables in their front yards to say we are a people who live in our front yards. We are a people who welcome you as you're walking your dog, as you are riding your bike. Stop and have a seat at my table or make a s'more with me and let's get to know one another. I don't want my house and my fence the property to be a barrier to getting to know you and inviting you to this table. I think today, more than ever, we have to be explicit with our welcomes. We can't just assume that people think, oh, that's a church. Of course, I'm welcome there. We have to be explicit with our messages. And so that's why we are so proud when... Uh, David released his statement um, after Charlottesville, how we are a church that uh, stands with all people. We are a church where hatred will not live. We are a church where all are welcome. We have to do explicit things like put signs in our yards that say, no matter who you are and where you're from, You are my neighbor and you're welcome here. In fact, you may have seen those kinds of signs in neighborhoods around Decatur written in Spanish and Arabic and English. I, too, got my sign this weekend while I was in uh, Richmond, Virginia and carted it through the airport and onto the plane. And so not only will my neighbors know that they're welcome, so will everybody else in the Atlanta airport. (laughs) This is a day and age where we have to be clear Because we have put up too many walls to membership and to inclusion into the body of Christ. But we still have more to do, don't we? There's more to do. How can we communicate the good news that you belong, no matter who you are, you belong children, you belong, handicapped, disabled, you belong, mentally challenged, you belong, poor, you belong, Uh, what, you name it, you belong. Every week in Sunday school with the first graders, we talk about a few books of the Bible, and, you know, we're trying to equip them in knowing their books of the Bible, and so for certain we want them to know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are Gospels. So we'll say, what are the Gospels? And we'll practice Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we'll say, well, what is a Gospel? What does Gospel mean? And we've challenged them to understand that Gospel is good news. Today, I want you to hear the good news. The good news is that you belong, and so does everybody else. Every time we read the gospel, we should be asking, for whom is this good news? For whom is this good news? Today, the invitation is yours. Uh, You are welcome in this place, no matter who you are. The doors of membership of inclusion, of welcome, are gods to give to you and we stand here to receive. Yours is the choice of receiving that invitation, of receiving that gift of being welcomed and being included. And so this morning as we sing, you're invited to respond to the gracious gift that has been extended. You can respond in a variety of reasons ways, whether that's personally in your pew, as you've been challenged to think about ways that you too might open your tables to all. But you might want to respond in a more explicit way by coming forward and sharing uh, a request for prayer or for claiming. This place as home, as a place that you want to belong and to plug in and to be a part and to be about welcoming and extending grace and mercy to all. And so this morning as we sing, I invite you to respond. I'll be down front. Thank you for listening to today's Sermon of the Week. Be sure to follow us online at fbcdecater.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a blessed week.